0: Planet Pod: essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter. Today we are continuing a series of programmes made in partnership with the Grantham Institute for Climate Change and the Environment at Imperial College, in which we look at the path to achieving net zero and some of the significant paradigm shifts we all need to make in our understanding of and our relationship to the natural world and its resources. Observant PlanetPod listeners will hear that there are some noises off today of bird song. Some of these are kent birds, and some of them, I have to say, are California birds. In today's discussion, we're exploring the ocean, well, more specifically, reefs and coastal areas, and the role they play not just in climate change mitigation, but as complex and vital ecosystems. And I'm delighted to be able to introduce my guests who are joining the podcast from California, So a huge thank you in advance for juggling the time difference to be with us. Dr. Ali Mashayek is a lecturer on environmental fluid dynamics at Imperial. I think he studies waves and he holds an NERC, Independent Research Fellowship. He's the author of a soon to be published paper on the contribution of coastal blue carbon ecosystems to climate change, mitigation and adaptation. And as a result of the lockdown, he finds himself in glamorous California rather than slightly dull West London. Ali, welcome to Planet PlanetPod, and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. My second guest, Ferenza Michelli, is a marine ecologist and conservation biologist conducting research and teaching at the Hopkins Marine Station of Stanford University. She is the David and Lucille Packard Professor of Marine Science and the co-director of the Center for Ocean Solutions. Among her many research activities, she's looking at the ecological role and spatial ecology of parrotfish and reef sharks, in the coral reefs of the Pacific Line Islands, and the effects of ocean acidification on seagrass, rocky reef, and kelp forest communities. Forenza, welcome to Planet Pod, and thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Amanda, and thank you for having me. We have so much to talk about today, and I know our listeners are fascinated by oceans, coastal waters, and reefs, and are deeply concerned about their welfare and the impact of climate change upon them. To get us started, I wonder if I could ask you, Verenza, perhaps to share some of your insights and observations as to what is happening to our marine ecosystems, particularly reefs and coastal areas, as a result of climate change.
1: Uh, yes, thank you. Uh, so r- the um, uh, risks and impacts uh, to oceans from uh, uh, overextraction of resources, from climate change, from pollutions, are uh, large and pervasive. In an analysis we conducted now about 10 years ago with a group of colleagues, uh, where we mapped the, the uh, occurrence and impacts of different types of risks on marine ecosystems around the globe, we found that, that a majority of the ocean is actually impacted and altered by, this, uh, um, by, this, by these pressures. And we estimated that perhaps less than 4% of the ocean is what we could consider pristine, unaffected by all of this pressure. So this was a scary and uh, really surprising results because we tend to think about oceans as uh, so vast that they can't really be uh, uh, fully impacted. On a more positive note, over the past uh, decades, there's been a ramping up in the establishment of protected areas and other measures to reverse these impacts. And through studies associated with this conservation measure, we have also also been able to document uh, um, large resilience of marine ecosystems. If protected, many come back, many species and ecosystems come back. So while the challenges are tremendous, and the rate at which we're impacting and altering oceans has been very high, there is also hope uh, that we actually have the tools to reverse these impacts.
0: So some of these impacts are to do with climate change, aren't they? And the general heating of the planet. But others are to do with with the way that we treat the oceans as well, aren't they? In terms of fishing or overfishing or lack of uh, understanding of the complexity and interrelationship of, of, of species within the oceans themselves. Yes, climate
1: change is by far the most insidious and pervasive impact right now, especially on reefs. We're mentioning coral reefs. Uh, Coral reefs are the ecosystem that perhaps is facing the greatest risks from warming and heat waves and ocean acidification. But um, uh, combined to these impacts, there's the more localized effects of overfishing, which is perhaps the number one threat after climate change and so over extraction of resources. And as you were saying, these uh, pressures uh, uh, act together, sometimes act synergistically, they enhance the effect of each other. And so the results is greater than the sum of the parts in a way. And also there's effects that cascade the ecosystem. For example, the um, uh, impact the over extraction and impacts on predator populations has affected that percolates down the system and so even targeted impact on a species can affect whole ecosystems through these connections
0: it's a really frightening thought isn't it and 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 when you talk about reefs i suppose most of us will think about Beaching of coral, because that's probably the thing that we're the most familiar with, which is a result of acidification and heat, isn't it? But, but are there other impacts that we might not be as aware of? Because unfortunately, unlike you, we don't get to study them all the time. Yes, one of the impacts that is you know, invisible often is ocean acidification.
1: And, and this is the absorption of carbon dioxide into the ocean, into the seawater. This uh, alters the chemistry of the oceans. It uh, decreases its pH, so it becomes more acidic, but also um, interferes with the ability of many organisms to build skeletons and shells and other structures. And we know a lot about ocean acidification now and its effect on marine lives from laboratory studies, where organisms are exposed to these conditions and then their physiology, their ecology, is, uh, uh, is, is observed and quantified. But we also have some natural systems, and here I want to tell you a little, a little bit about the work that myself and my collaborators and many others around the world have been able to do, because there are some natural laboratories for the study of ocean acidification that occur at volcanic vents, basically areas in the oceans where carbon dioxide, carbon dioxide bubbles from the seafloor. Uh, it looks a little like a jacuzzi or a glass of champagne and basically you're swimming through these bubbles and what happens is that locally the pH of the water drops to levels anticipate for the end of the century and beyond. And so some some of these bands uh, exist in coral reefs in Papua New Guinea and mm-hmm. Catalina Fabricius and other uh, scientists have been studying these systems and have shown the coral reefs essentially Uh, um, collapse under these conditions. And so the threat for reefs is not only for bleaching and warming and the direct mortality, but also this insidious killer that prevents corals from building their skeletons. And we have been studying uh, vents in the Mediterranean as well in southern Italy. Uh, These are the first vent systems that were actually used for research. And we've been working there for over a decade documenting how temperate reef ecosystems in the Mediterranean respond to ocean acidification. And this enables us to document the impacts of acidification and the response to this one type of climate stressors, not just of individual species, but over whole ecosystem, the interaction, the processes. And so we've seen that overall, the, while there are some winners, we talk about winners and losers because there are some species that indeed are able to adapt and thrive, even under the most extreme level of acidification, uh, going to the great resilience, now back to this idea of, of resilience. So there are some organisms that can withstand pretty extreme conditions, but overall, the diversity, the productivity, the resilience of the system, which is its ability to come back after a heat wave, for example are impacted and many of these important functions are lost.
0: That's fascinating because that sounds like almost a natural climate change in microcosm happening naturally in the ocean without man being involved at all. And so I guess one would expect if that had been happening over hundreds of thousands of years, then, then systems would have adapted a little bit. But to give you a real live laboratory that you can explore i mean the the data and information coming out of that must be hugely useful to the research that you've been doing and your colleagues have been doing it is very exciting because you know right now in real
1: time we have this window to the future you know wherein we can actually see what happens and uh, one way in addition to the science in which uh, we have uh, tried to take advantage of this opportunity from having this you know actual laboratory in the ocean that we can study right now as a collaboration with colleagues here at Stanford in communication with whom we have uh, built virtual reality experiences that basically take people through this journey into the future and the future effect of climate change using this band system as models for kind of picturing and bringing to life what climate change might mean for oceans if we don't uh, very aggressively address these threats.
0: That's absolutely vital, isn't it, to take people on that journey because for some people they have trouble imagining what the impacts are like and it isn't until we've seen it right up close in front of us or or very vividly depicted on our television screens, which is what happened with things like Blue Planet, that people become motivated to change. And and a lot of the work that you've been doing, Ali, at the Grantham Institute and your colleagues and others is about trying to to inform us as the general public about some of those issues that seem very complex scientifically and are, but making them accessible and making them, um, you know, for, for us as the sort of, you know, lay person, making them understandable. And that your work has sort of dovetailed a little bit with the work that Forensa does, because because you've been looking at, at blue carbon and the impact of acidification and the possible role of blue carbon as a mitigation factor, particularly with things like, you know, kelp, sea kelp and seagrasses and things. Can you explain to me what what is blue carbon? What do we mean when we talk about blue carbon?
2: Uh, Sure. Blue carbon is a term that is about a decade old, and it refers to coastal ecosystems. And primarily, uh, it includes uh, seagrass meadows, salt marshes, and mangrove forests. And, uh, you know, sometimes we include... uh, reefs. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we include uh, uh, microalgae, like seaweeds and kelp forests, and sometimes we don't. But the, the three main ones are seagrass, salt marshes, and uh, and mangrove forests. And they are termed blue carbon because they're blue. They're in the ocean, which is blue. And they are also, they have the ability to absorb carbon and then sequester it in the soil underneath. So they can be seen as a source of, uh, Carbon storage, and so that makes them relevant to the climate change mitigation discussion.
0: What I mean, I know what a salt marsh is, and I can imagine what a mangrove is like, but 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 what is seagrass exactly?
2: Well, they're basically just grasslands under the sea, right? So, oh, okay. they're there, yeah, there are a few tens of meters. I mean, the range uh, changes, but they're under the sea in coastal regions, and they don't directly capture carbon from the atmosphere. But they do indirectly through the car- atmospheric carbon getting into the at- into the ocean, and then there is the, the the biochemistry in the ocean that actually helps them, you know, absorb that carbon. They 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 have a very short lifespan, which means that that translates to them having a, a high sequestration rate, because they keep growing sequestering carbon. Then they get uh, you get layers of dead seagrass on top of each other, and then that that's that forms a storage of carbon in the sediment and in the soil underneath the seagrass.
0: I'm sorry, Francesca, do you go ahead?
1: No, please. No, I wanted to add that they're actually flowering plants. And uh, like mangroves, they have adapted to life in the sea, no, underwater. And, but often, uh, um, you know, we assume that what's in the ocean are algae or macroalgae, but they're actual plants that make flowers. That looks a little like a wheat spike.
0: I mean, that's the thing about the ocean is this extraordinary, beautiful and in many ways unexplored, but but fascinating um, part of our world that most of us don't get to have much interaction with. I, I wanted to ask you Ali, a little bit about this, because because while the 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 role of the blue, the blue carbon as a sequestration is important in terms of its percentage contribution to the overall carbon sequestration, it's not huge, is it? but actually has so many other benefits that, the, that that percentage doesn't matter as much. Is that right?
2: Uh, well, that is my understanding, and that's what came out of the, 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 the last IPCC report on the ocean and cryosphere, that, that we refer to as rock for short. Uh, in terms of the amount of carbon that they store, and even in terms of the net amount of carbon stored underneath, if you, if you translate that to grams of carbon and then start putting that number in the pool of uh, numbers of carbon when we discuss emissions and emission cuts, then they're not necessarily significant. But I think that does injustice to them because we shouldn't just treat them as grams of carbon. They're ecosystems and uh, and they have many other co-benefits that we should really care about. But the answer to your question is that my my understanding is that they're not necessarily a significant source of sink of carbon, in the sense that it would make them a primary method for climate change mitigation.
0: But they are part of that bigger picture. But what are some of those co-benefits kind of that they bring then?
2: Well, uh, I mean, uh, it depends, it, it, it really depends uh, from region to region, but, uh, and Firenze is can, can talk to this much better than me, but they're really key ecosystems in terms of the, the, you know, their ecosystem. So there's the chain of that there's a food chain within them that leads to fish stocks. So in terms of sust- sustainability of fish stocks, they're really key. So in terms of human population growth and sustainable fishing, they're really key. They are structures. They have very complex geometries from uh, corals to mangroves to seagrass, and usually you have a combination of these. So they're really significantly, potentially significantly important in terms of coastal protection against sea level rise so those are the two main that come to my mind and there is a coincidence of regions in the world that are highly populated have very large population growth are subject to really significant sea level rise and host these ecosystems and those also happen to be regions that we have really a significant percentage of loss of these ecosystems so that is why in assessments uh, that have come out by the UN, by Global Commissions of Climate Change in the past few years, they always find restoration and protection of these ecosystems such as mangrove forests as one of the key that we need to do in terms of climate change mitigation adaptation. It's because they bring together a bunch of different co-benefits and they, they prevent chain events that can lead to you know, uh, catastrophes down the road.
0: Yeah, and I guess we're also helping to protect and restore kind of wider coastal habitats, aren't we? And they have a, a really important role to play, not just in, in as you say, in, in climate change and mitigation, but also bringing other benefits to, to populations as well, don't they? So, so, you know, actually having, having you know, protected coastal areas are of huge benefit to us, both in terms of recreation and protection, as you say, against, you know, storms and interventions like that, but also just having those as part of our wider um, safer, healthier planet, and, and the coastal regions are really important from that perspective. Yes, yes
1: absolutely. I was uh, was just saying, uh, you know, I think I completely uh, agree. The overall uh, contribution uh, to carbon sequestration of these ecosystems is relatively minor because uh, when you look at the whole ocean, they're found in relatively few shallow places, and in the case of mangroves, uh, for example, only in tropical areas. So. It's perhaps uh, 2% of the ocean that has these habitats. So, but locally, their contribution can be very high. And the estimates are that as much as 50% of the carbon sequestered in sediments, in ocean sediments, is found in these uh, habitats. But uh, um, uh, like Ali was uh, just explaining, the, uh, the vast array of co benefits. That this ecosystem provides uh, basically makes uh, investments in their protection and restoration for climate change mitigation a no regret solution, we call it. Because uh, in addition to uh, carbon sequestration, um, uh, they purify water, they trap sediments, uh, they're nurseries for a large amount, um, number of species, including fisheries and aquaculture species, support ecotourism tourism, and also uh, they um, protect people from risks. For example, um, mangroves in particular and coral reefs are these very effective barriers against sea level rise, but also storms and typhoon and extreme events and mitigate the impacts. And for example, in a study that we conducted on the function the coral reefs plays in uh, um, protecting people from, from storm and, uh, and uh, hurricanes, uh, we conducted a meta-analysis, which is a synthesis of published studies where scientists were measured the, um, uh, the attenuation of waves as the waves go on reefs. And we put together all this information from different uh, coral reefs around the world and found that, on average, coral reefs Decrease wave force by 97%. And so we then estimated based on these results that as many as 200 million people would be at much greater direct risk if coral reefs were lost. And so it's a huge set of functions and role that these ecosystems play. And so I think that it's very important to keep in mind that the co-benefits you know, that we were discussing and uh, the, what is lost with these habitats in addition to the carbon sequestration function.
0: <laughs> if you put it in those terms, friends, if you talk about the you know, numbers of millions of people who will be affected, it isn't just because we have a duty to, to look after the, 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 the unique and special places on our planet. I mean, this is actually directly in our own interest. And as a large part of the world's population live on, 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 on the coast and live in cities on, in coastal regions, it's, it's vital. That, that we protect these. Is there, yeah. I mean, is there much hope for the coral reefs? Because we hear about them dying. I mean, can you bring them back to life? Is that things you can do? Or once they have reached that point of degradation, there's, there's no return? Um, there is hope for sure. Uh, protection of
1: reefs uh, uh, shows that uh, um, some of the coral reefs, if direct impacts on them from overfishing and pollution and sediment loading are removed, uh, can persist. Uh, There are are some very interesting results recently on what we call bright spots. Coral reefs uh, that perform uh, uh, exceptionally well, despite the current conditions. Some of the reasons why that comes about have to do with where they are. For example, coral reefs that are close to upwelling areas, which where there's cooler waters that are brought up by currents, and it's sort of an air conditioning effect. In the face of on the face of warming, they're cooled down locally, and so they uh, do well. In other cases, coral reefs that are impacted by extreme events like heat waves and that undergo mass mortality of corals have show, have been shown to come back uh, very quickly because there's retention of larvae and uh, local sources that replenish them very quickly. So these bright spots that have to do with the natural setting, but also on how they are used and managed and how people uh, have organized to protect them, for example, uh, uh, give us hope that some coral reefs can remain and act as a refuge for replenishment of others. Then there's also uh, effort that is going to restoration. And that goes from the restoration of the physical habitat to um, assisted evolution, for example, the uh, outplants of uh, uh, heat-tolerant corals that do especially well under these new conditions as uh, um, basically um, uh, super performers that can repopulate these areas. And so all these... Measures are still in an exploratory phase. It's still more about research than about actual solutions. But at least they they give some promise that uh, uh, through technologies, through science, uh, by mobilizing a larger community that tries to address this problem and solve these problems, that we can do something to reverse this decline. Yeah, and that's really... Yeah, emissions, I mean, reducing emissions is by far... Of course, but there are also no a lot of things that can be done to buy time, to support the natural potential and resilience of some corals and some coral reefs,
0: and no a lot that can be done. I think in different ways. Yeah, and that's why the research is so important, isn't it? The research that you do, the research that, that Ali is doing at Imperial, and and his colleagues are doing, to to actually give us the the evidence and and the understanding of what we can do, and, and if there's any form of man-made intervention that can can protect the to protect the reefs and to protect the coastal areas. Ali, could could I just ask you? Have you, I mean, have you and your colleagues observed any beneficial effects in in terms of oceans and and some of these ecosystems as a result of of the pandemic and the slowing down and the reduction of emissions, or is it much too soon to be able to tell in, in ocean environments? Because it is the thing that everybody talks about, the, the, the immediate benefit is we can see more now. The air is clearer, and the air pollution is a very obvious one. Can the same be said for, for oceans and, 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 and mass areas of water or not?
2: Well, I I, I, don't, I don't know. I'm not aware of it. My, my guess is that it's too soon to, to draw any conclusion like that. I mean, obviously I can imagine that uh, that coastal regions that are uh, hot, t- hot spots of tourism would have taken a breath from uh, from lower activities. But I don't I really don't know anything about that. So I, I again I think Ferenc will be able to probably answer that better.
1: No, like I say it is uh, too early to tell, you know, in a few months what the impacts are. Um, there, there are some data that are starting to come out that show that, for example, fishing effort is greatly decreased. And there was mm-hmm. a study that this organization called Global Fishing Watch just uh, put out last week where they uh, used vessel tracking data. You now the trackers that are on uh, on large vessels, uh, fishing vessels as well, uh, that, that allow us to quantify fishing effort and fishing activity from space, not in real time. So using this data before and after the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, they saw that globally there was a decrease of about 6% of fishing effort, which doesn't seem like much, but then when you zoom into certain regions, that actually goes down to 40 to 50% reduction. Now there's this map that show basically Mediterranean only tap by fishing boats and then going dark. And the same now in the, of China and other areas. So there is this uh, immediate short-term decrease in many users you now, tourism and fishing. Uh, now, what the impact is going to be depends on how long it lasts and then what mm-hmm. happens next. Because many species have life, uh, life um, cycles that uh, require now years in some cases to respond to decreases in fishing pressure and then there's also the possibility that effort will ramp up as soon as things open up and actually eliminate any potential benefit that came for the organisms and the ecosystems from the shutdown and then lastly illegal activities that also have uh, increased and expanded with decreased surveillance And so might and it's difficult to quantify, but there's indications also from the satellite tracking data that those have increased as
0: well. So early to tell, but there is a lot to happening and a lot to keep track of. Mm. It's certainly something we've talked about on on Mm -hmm. the podcast recently because we, we were talking to our colleagues at Blue Marine Foundation who are a marine conservation organization and they've been observing the reduction in fishing particularly here in Europe and, and locally around the UK um, and how boats are just not going out and that has had a, a really beneficial effect on, on fish stocks and recently on Planet Pod we were discussing the level of fish stocks with Rainer Fraser who invented the fish base which is a form of counting fish stocks and he 'd observed a reduction in fishing in and around the u k waters and in europe um, and if we can keep that and not just ramp up the permissions to fish so so dramatically post lockdown, we might actually give give the ocean a chance to recover but I mean I mean we do have to take some some man made interventions and and Ali, with your work with with blue carbons, particularly the blue carbon ecosystems around salt marshes, is there anything we can do? It, it's in an artificial sense. I think the engineering uh, solutions to try and protect some of those tidal salt marshes and some of those areas that are that we find much closer to home in terms of the UK are there are there solutions that we could we could propose as well as just saying that we obviously need to reduce our emissions.
2: Uh, yes, we can. It, it comes down to management because the, the coastal ecosystems are going to be significantly impacted by sea level rise. And sea level rise, uh, well, we, we tend to talk about global mean sea level rise and the fact that it can be anywhere from 30 centimeters to a meter by 2100. But when you look at it regionally, they can be much larger. And so, so it, it, it comes down to management uh, and comes down to, to regional policy making. Because as sea level rises, you are, we are going to lose a lot of wetlands, that's a fact. But we also have to, we're we also gonna deal with mass migration. And then we're going to have uh, newly generated wetlands. So it comes down to management of that land in terms of how we basically allocate space and how, we, how much of these ecosystems we accommodate and how much of the newly available areas of wetlands we're going to allocate to you know, aquaculture, aquaculture, or just you know, development of residential and in industrial uh, uh, units. And it also and in that calculation we also uh, comes the, the, the ecosystem of adaptation itself, right? The, the resilience of different ecosystems is different and and, and act on different timescales. So we tend to talk about blue carbons a lot of times in a very, I think, anthropocenic way, right? We tend to, to talk about them as ecosystems that help with mitigation and adaptation. But but in reality, there's no reason to believe that they are going to adapt in the way that we want them to adapt. So they have to deal with our overpopulation and and the the many adverse ways in which we affect them. They have to deal with the climate change. And now they have to deal with, they have to adapt to our adaptation to climate change. So it's a complicated, uh, I think, uh, answer, and it varies from ecosystem to ecosystem. But for salt marshes in particular, and when we, and specifically about the uk it comes down to how we manage the newly available wetlands and newly available salt marshes over the next decades as they become available so it it, 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 it has to be built into policy making long-term policy making and it has to be linked with you know population growth public migration and and infrastructure basically development of sustainable resilient infrastructure in coastal regions
0: yeah and that's something that we have to do as connected communities we can't just do it in an isolated way can we i mean what we need is a global solution and and the fact that you know we have we have research teams and centres like yours working together on a global solution is absolutely vital and we need that global policy commitment as well don't we which needs to you know continually reinforce those messages from the IPCC and and if we ever get to have COP26 again to have this as part of that conversation because it is really really important. Um, I, thank you both it's been absolutely fascinating having that kind of glimpse into the ocean. I, I can't let you go for without asking you uh, can you just explain to us a little bit about what spatial ecology is is and why it's so important that you've been working with parrotfish and reef sharks? I mean, why why those particular communities of, 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 of species? Why, why are they important for the research that you've been doing? So um, parrotfishes and herbivores in general, not fishes
1: that eat algae on coral reefs and, and uh, uh, their predators, sharks, are very important because uh, not only... Um uh, they include a diverse set of species they're part of marine biodiversity they're beautiful they're really fun to watch. They do all sorts of interesting things, but they're key component of ecosystems in a functional sense so parrot fishes um by eating algae allow the persistence of corals because algae compete with corals and so and they tend to uh, um take over basically sp- uh, space and so Parrot fishes by grazing algae and eating algae allows the recovery and facilitates the recovery of corals. And um, uh, sharks are also very important because uh, um, reef sharks, for example, that I've been studying, connect the coral reefs with the pelagic environment. They are seen on reefs, but they roam around and go in the pelagic environment, sometimes thousands of kilometers away from the reefs, feed on pelagic species that are found offshore, basically their footprint is really large and by feeding on these very large ecosystems their abundances can be very high because they draw energy on a much larger system than the reef and this abundance of predators essentially sets a a sets off a cascade of interactions that enables the parrot fishes to persist and to graze on the reef so it's a connected system that starts from the sharks and then through fishes goes all the way down to corals. And sometimes we don't appreciate uh, the connections that uh, um, allow these ecosystems to persist and to function. And so that's uh, where space comes into place because these species uh, are mobile and they use the marine environment in very interesting ways. We tend to think about marine ecosystems as open and homogeneous but there's a lot of structure that is partly driven by what animals do and then also because they uh, connect to these processes of recovery and persistence of the corals that are so important now in the face of uh, climate change and climate impacts on reefs.
0: Absolutely fascinating and that interrelationship is so fascinating and how when we look at one thing it, it leads to something else and something else. And that just reminds us that we live in a very, very connected world and we're much, much closer to, to our planet than, than we perhaps always are aware of. And it's we need to take great, to great... About
1: these connections in the ocean, but and also the, to realise that this connection includes us. Mm.
0: You know,
1: that we're part of these ecosystems and that we interact with everything in also very interesting and complex ways. And we now talk about social-ecological systems, often not just ecological systems, to highlight uh, the connections uh, to us and from us with my natural ecosystems as well.
0: Absolutely. And with that thought in mind, perhaps this is just to bring us to a close, what what would you say are the, is the one thing that we could do, um, you know, uh, that listeners to Planet Pod could do to to take some action to protect those ecosystems? I mean, a lot of us are not close to the oceans; we can't do things directly. What are some of the actions that we can take that that would help protect those vital systems? I would say that
1: the awareness, the realization that oceans are vital to our health, to our safety, to our well-being, that they hold the the potential for solutions to all of the problems that we are facing. Now they cover two-thirds of the planet, over 90% of the habitable. Uh, Space in our planet, we have explored maybe 5% of them. There's a lot out there that holds promise for providing solutions. And so uh, supporting actions to protect oceans, um, uh, participating from what can be done locally all the way to global initiative and supporting oceans. I think that being advocates for oceans uh, is perhaps the most important thing that we can do. Absolutely.
0: And Ali, from your perspective, you know, in your research institute and the work that you do, what would be your kind of call for how people could behave differently to, to protect protect oceans and, and, and these very important parts of the planet?
2: Uh, I mean, I, I basically agree with what Virenza said. And I think just raising public awareness is key and also raising public awareness in how different aspects of this problem connect. Like the connection between the science and you know the, the environmental aspects and the policy making is 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 complicated and it's not even clear to to you know to me. I've been wrapping my head around it for the past few years. So just basically discussing those connections will give people a chance of knowing how they can impact people in their communities that can then propagate information and decision making down the road. So that's, that's what I would, I mean, that's what we're trying to actually achieve by writing this briefing paper through the Grantham Institute. And I also think like, I mean, I am in an environmental engineering department and uh, it's, it's interesting because it's the crossroad of environmental science and engineering and engineers can be very pragmatic. So from my perspective, one thing that I would like to see more happening is to have a more blunt conversation on the science and engineering side, mostly at an intellectual level, on geoengineering, because that's the word that we usually uh, stay away from. But if the pace of climate change is so fast that we don't have enough time to naturally deal with it, we will have to resort to extreme uh, actions. And I think it's much better to have a blunt conversation about. You know, negative consequences of those actions way ahead of the time, but having that conversation while preventing it from quickly turning into solutions that are premature and can damage the environment is 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 is, is the key, and that's why we're holding on and holding on doing that. So that's again one of the other things that, that that I'm trying to to basically find a way into the conversation of. But again, that's something that Fiorenza has, has thought about, they've written about.
0: So. That's a really good point to close on. I mean, this is what it's about, isn't it? Having these conversations, and I'm enormously grateful to you both for, for making the time to join us on Planet Pod because this is the more we can do to share those conversations with the wider public, um, the more um, passion and support and energy we'll have into finding, helping you find some of those solutions. So. On our behalf, we're very grateful to you that you get to swim around in beautiful coral reefs, Forenza, um, and, and Ali, that you do your wave research because it's really important. Uh, Forenza and Ali, thank you both so much for joining Planet Pod and for making the time to be with us. Thank you so much for having us. It's the same here. Thank you that's a a great pleasure um and um my sincere thanks to my guests my uh, obviously thanks to to jim my producer who's doing a stalwart job as always in his cupboard denied his beautiful studio um a huge thank you to everyone who's working so hard and continues to work so hard during the pandemic to keep our countries and our basic services running and a thanks to you planet pod listeners please keep in touch you can tweet us at planet underscore pod or you can visit the website www.theplanetpod.com to download previous um, episodes including some with blue marine and oceans um, and the Grantham series and if you listen on a podcast app could you please take a moment to rate and review us because that really helps thank you all goodbye take care stay safe and stay well planet pod is brought to you by Akil management my thanks to our producer jim haywood and our researcher beth palmer and to you, our listeners, without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet pod, or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening.